womanism is a uh, term coined by Alice Walker and it's kind of become associated with scholarship of African-American women working in some manner with liberation theology. So there's two volumes at least of the journal Buddhist Christian Studies um, that are special issues on womanist Buddhist dialogue. That's in 2016 and also in 2012. And then there's also a new edited volume out by Emily McRae and George Yancey on Buddhism and whiteness that came out a couple years back. There was, so you mentioned earlier, and my connection went a bit bad, so it was Reverend Angel Cleodo Williams, and there was someone before that, wasn't there? Yeah, Zenju Earthland Manuel. She has a book out called The Way of Tenderness, which is just awesome, a really good book. And she's talking a lot there about the kind of, again, the kind of emotional support that we need to be the kind of selves who are liberated in the sense that Buddhism means, but also in the way that she means some in a contemporary sociopolitical sense. So The Way of Tenderness. You're listening to the Buddhist Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Tom. The episode this week is a discussion with Leah Kamenson about a paper she wrote about how Buddhism might help us appreciate Bell Hooks' writing better. Great. An educational podcast about black feminist philosophy. But there's one thing a little odd about it. The podcast features two white people. In the podcast manifesto, I said that I wanted no speaking on other people's behalf. Now, I've assumed that Bell Hooks is a far too famous scholar to come on the fifth episode of this podcast. I didn't actually email her, but um, I just assumed she wouldn't get back to me. But in the first of many forthcoming episodes that explicitly talk about race, I've invited a white guest to talk about a black philosopher. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm throwing Leah under the bus. She speaks brilliantly throughout the podcast and it's a great discussion, but you can tell from her recommendations of black feminist philosophers throughout the paper that she thinks it's very important to read those papers as well as, or maybe even instead of her paper. I want to stress that I care about representation and that this state of affairs has come about primarily because of my own ignorance of Buddhist philosophers who are black and people of colour. Leah was amazing in helping to acquaint me with them more throughout and after the recording. With all that in mind, sit back and listen to the podcast. I really enjoyed the discussion. I hope that you can learn from it too. People do not enter into and depart from relationships as isolated individuals walking in and out of rooms. Rather, they merge with one another, leaving parts of themselves behind with others and generally change each other in the course of being related. This beautiful passage is part of the opening of today's guest's doctoral dissertation. Each guest of the previous episode of this podcast have shared the belief that Buddhist materials have much to contribute to how we philosophize today. Today's guest, Leah Kalmanson, is no different. Associate Professor of Philosophy at Drake University and editor of an impressive array of publications, Leah's track record shows how we can bring Buddhist concepts into productive conversations about aesthetics, globalization, philosophy of language, Levinas, and as we will see in a book forthcoming this September, existentialism. Today we'll talk about her paper, Buddhism and Bell Hooks, which argues the Buddhist concept no self can help us truly appreciate Bell Hooks' response to the identity critique of liberatory political movement. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we can start off uh, setting the stage for what's being responded to here. So the identity critique, I must admit, when I read your paper, I first didn't know what that was myself. So um, from what I understand, this comes mainly from postmodernism, but you outline it through Sartre and his 
um, preface called Black Orpheus, which is quite an influential piece of writing and also quite controversial. I think I'm right in saying mm-hmm. that Sartre isn't a postmodernist. So can you kind of set the stage? So what's the story there that we're talking about with the identity critique? Right. You know, you're right that I, I focus on that Black Orpheus uh, writing by, by Sartre in the introduction to a, a collection of poetry um, by sort of negritude poets, right? And that was just something that, so that I should say first, I suppose, this is a really old article of mine. This was a chapter of my dissertation originally. Um, so it's been a lot of years since I wrote this. Um, but it was something that at that time, sort of working on my dissertation, this particular topic brought together a lot of strands of, I guess, thinking and ideas that had been sort of weighing on me since I was even younger than that. So that particular uh, uh, work by Sartre goes back to something I read as an undergraduate. That was assigned to me uh, way back when, when I was an undergraduate student. Um, and it was just an element of that work that stuck with me that always bothered me. And I always felt like I had a hard time articulating why it bothered me. Um, And so part of the article is me just trying to kind of work through my own understanding of that line he was trying to walk. Because I think in a lot of ways I'm aligned with, you know, Sartre's sort of famous quotation, right? That uh, existence precedes essence, right? It's Mm -hmm. this basic idea that there's no kind of, substantive essential self or substantive essential anything underlying kind of the flux of reality. And so in that particular book, the introduction to the work of the negritude poets, you know, negritude, I I suppose, could just be translated as something like blackness. Um, And these poets are talking about black identity and black selves, and they sometimes use the term black soul. And so Sartre is trying to write this introduction that's very supportive of their artistic and political movement but he's trying to walk this kind of line because of his own, I guess, philosophical commitments. And he's not on board with any account of a self that sounds like it's relying on a kind of metaphysical core, like a soul. And it ends up just feeling really condescending. Right. Um, and, and maybe when you said that that's kind of a this is some controversial work by, by him, that's part of it, um, because he basically says, you know, in his introduction, like, It's fine to talk about your essential blackness when you're trying to build yourselves up. But one day, you know, he's sort of speaking to these poets. You, too, will will need to have this existential crisis, you know, this existential insight that all of us kind of, I don't know, post-soul European thinkers have already had, right, which is that there is no essence underlying existence. And so that whole model, right, that whole model of kind of this trajectory of self-development, this trajectory of existential awareness, um, the ways that it seemed to be condescending to the position of the poets, even while Sartre was trying to lift up their work in his own way, were just, again, a lot of things that were in the mix for me um, that I've been thinking about for a few years, even before starting to write the dissertation. I was actually assigned uh, Black Orpheus recently, part of my modules, and I had a similar experience, not with quite the same thing, but when he was saying that class is more real or something to that effect than race. I thought that was yeah. it's quite an odd thing to say. Um, so, so one thing I wanted to ask um, was within Buddhism, there's this concept of emptiness, which you talk about a lot. And I, I really like your interpretation of it. But do you think also that with interpretations of emptiness, also, there might be this worry about talking about substantial souls also? Yeah, I think the basic analogy I try to line up with the quotations from Bell Hooks in that particular article are are indeed saying that the same concerns that I had about Sartre's reaction to the use of self and soul in that book of poetry, definitely, I think, 
can apply in some senses to Buddhist discourse, depending on how we interpret the idea of, of no self. Um, and I think it's really standard to say that the doctrine of no self is, is not just a simplistic denial that some sort of entity exists, right? That's sort of the, you know, your student's first reaction to hearing about it is, well, that's crazy because obviously I exist. And I think Buddhism fully agrees with that. You know, obviously you do exist in some certain way, right? So the doctrine is really more of an assertion about the way that you do exist, right? About the kinds of entities that, that we are. And yeah, that assertion is that, you know, we are uh, composite entities, right? That we're functioning wholes and our continued existence depends upon the continued functioning of all the parts that make us up and that we're relational entities, right? So we don't exist independently of the causes and conditions that give rise to and sustain these composite things that we are. And I think we can think about that in terms of our bodies, um, or at least Buddhism does often think about that in terms of our bodies and our kind of bodily relation to the world via senses. We can also think about this as our relation to a larger physical environment that sustains us and then write like our social environment and our relations to each other. And I say, you know, when I first prefaced, I said, you know, that there's definitely a kind of, there is this concern over the way the doctrine of no self could be deployed in a way that could be disempowering, um, mirroring the same kind of concerns I had about the essay by Sartre uh, when I was younger. But I did want to say that I think there's actually a lot, there's a lot of great work, um, often by scholars in religious studies, but also activists and Buddhist practitioners who were talking about Buddhism and systemic racial injustice, um, the implication of Buddhist institutions in systemic injustices, but also the role of Buddhism and Buddhist practice in addressing uh, systemic injustices. Um, so there's a lot of good work out there that, you know, definitely does not kind of invite that kind of concern over the way the doctrine of no self is being interpreted. Just to, you know, I'll throw out before, because I want to make sure I do provide some good sort of resources of other people to think, to read about, I guess, for potential listeners. I read some of on the podcast. So you may have noticed that the audio cut out a bit there. Um, it comes back later, but um, the audio is not really salvageable because of my connection uh, for the podcast. It's really annoying because this is actually part of the most important part uh, in the whole podcast of what Leah says. So I'll try and summarize it from what I can from the faulty audio. So she said that she read the manifesto of this podcast and she also really cares about representation. And she acknowledges that she's neither a Buddhist practitioner or at least not public Buddhist practitioner, nor a black woman, which is what we're talking about for a lot of the podcasts. So she really wanted to stress that readers should listen to black female Buddhist practitioners and read them, um, and they do great work. So she particularly recommends Angel Kyoto Williams and Zenju Earthland Manuel. All right. Um, and they're doing they both got major books out there. They're talking about black women Buddhism and about social justice and Buddhism and about the role of kind of personal practice and activism. It's just really great stuff. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I, I love what particularly uh, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams is writing about, but there are some worries yeah. among some uh, feminists um, whom you engage with in your article that no self is a kind of patronizing or disempowering concept or doctrine so I think you spelled out like three kind of basically an argument of three that kind of said this is why particularly disempowers people 
So do you think you could speak a bit about why it goes from no self right to, oh, well, we, we can't really critique what we are and we have no understanding of our own thoughts? Yeah, sure. That material came from this other really excellent theologian that I had been introduced to, Catherine Keller, who does work in kind of feminist theology. And she does really interesting work talking about kind of the themes of self-sacrifice, humbleness, sort of in Christian thought, and how those themes can be empowering for some and disempowering for others, right? And so how the sort of teachings on humbleness or teachings on self-sacrifice or teachings on meekness, right, or mildness could be taken as disempowering for women in particular. Um, And so she was invited, there's an interesting story behind that article, she was invited to participate in this kind of cross-cultural Buddhist-Christian dialogue event. Um, And to her, I think from her perspective, it seemed that if Christianity had a problem, right, with this kind of disempowered vision of the self, uh, that Buddhism certainly did too, right? Um, and she brought that up. And it, 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 from what I understand from the, the, the meeting at the time, a lot of people didn't really know what to make of the critique, especially that weren't familiar with her work or with other sort of feminist work in theology. Um, but then she produced this article as a result of that, where she lays out, lays out her kind of uh, argument. But yeah, the idea that for some people being told that the self is entirely constituted by its relations, right? And I think you could say this of Buddhism, and you could maybe say it of of thinkers like Foucault and Judith Butler, right, who have kind of a heavily social constructivist view of the self, that being told that the self is entirely socially constructed makes it sound as if we're saying the self is entirely determined by power relations. Um, And that when we say that, we do seem to remove the ground, some feminists would say, right, remove the grounds upon which women exert their own agency. So that's that's always been, I think there's a tension kind of between maybe the the more postmodern wing of feminism, and I might think of sort of Butler on that post-structuralist side of feminist work, and others in feminism who don't take that sort of stronger postmodernist or post-structuralist stance. That there's a tension there, right, over that, that precise issue. What does it mean to say that the self is socially constructed and how far are we taking that? So that was something that, was in, that interested me a lot as I was trying to work through this article and the dissertation in general. Okay, so you do not agree with this critique, is my impression. And you, you clearly find something quite interesting in what Bell Hooks has to say. So she talks about radical black subjectivity and can you explain so i think you identify three aspects of radical black subjectivity that you think are worth mentioning and talking about so what are those three aspects yeah no and this was just taken from a few different articles of hers and uh that were out there trying to kind of put together different features of what she meant by radical black subjectivity and the three that i had pulled out were multiplicity changeability and this this aesthetic dimension and i think the first two are more self-explanatory right that we are not sort of singular entities that there are there's the possibility for multiple persona or multiple sort of selves that inhabit the person um, or that make up the person that we're different people in different contexts right i'm one person with my friends and another with my colleagues in, in some ways and that's that's okay changeability of the self right which sort of follows from that notion of multiplicity but then the aesthetic dimension is really where, you know, I've always find Bell Hooks to just be a really sort of mind-bending philosopher. She does such amazing work. And it was that aesthetic dimension that she's, she's kind of continually bringing in aesthetics all the time into her political work, into her 
cultural criticism. Her point, right, is that the construction of identity, the social construction of identity, whatever we mean by that, that it has an aesthetic component, that we're building something, um, we're putting things together, I and mean, we're putting things together to achieve certain qualities, right, to be impactful, to be strong, or to be compelling, to be empowered, right, that these are aesthetic qualities that we are working on and building in ourselves. And so for her, she also, right, is mindful of the possibility of an identity critique to remove the kind of grounds of subjective agency, but she's also wanting to bring in this sort of liberational side of it where it speaks to the freedom that we do have to be other than who we are today. And so, yeah, those three aspects, multiplicity, changeability, and that aesthetic dimension of self-construction are what I was focusing on in the article. Mm. So am I right in saying that she, you know, she actually agrees with quite a lot of what those who are espousing the identity critique have to say. So, for instance, you know, there isn't one black essential unified experience, but she just doesn't want to go to the disempowering aspect of what the those propounding the identity critique have to say. Right, yeah, I mean, the article to go to for that from her is one called Postmodern Blackness, um, which is, again, something I read really early and stuck with me, uh, where she she kind of uh, walks through the argument that I just walked through, right, this idea that she is, in fact, very on board with the critique of identity um, in many ways and wants to resist a kind of monolithic essentialism, so some way of understanding blackness that reduces it to one fixed static thing, right? But she's also mindful of the way that identity critique can differently affect people, right, given our various sort of power differentials that define the social landscape that we're all that we're all in. So that's the essay, Postmodern Blackness. And that was something, again, that I read as an undergraduate before ever going to graduate school for Buddhist philosophy. But I carried that with me, right? And I always kind of saw that parallel between a lot of postmodern or feminist identity critiques and the doctrine of no self. And so I just, I could never kind of let go of that worry. You know, I would just kind of recycle that, those quotes from Bell Hooks in my head from postmodern blackness. And I kept thinking, you know, whatever I'm doing with Buddhist philosophy, I have to, I have to be mindful of those same concerns that she raises about postmodern identity critiques, right? I have to think about those same concerns as they might apply to the doctrine of no self. And so in that sense that, you know, that those kinds of driving questions really came, you know, pushed me right through sort of to the end of the dissertation. Okay, so I think that's really powerful. That's what driving you is that we should always interrogate Buddhist concepts to see if they're serving us well and doing the thing kind of things that we want to do. Interrogate our own I think as scholars, right, in Buddhist mm. philosophy. Because I think especially as philosophers, we have a tendency to pick and choose the texts that we deal with. You know, we kinda let them fall maybe uncritically into the philosophical versus the religious, or we import all these kinds of, you know, assumptions about which ones are philosophical, right? And so yeah, mm. I think that certainly thinking through the way that Buddhist philosophy itself is kind of a, a, a newly constructed category in many ways within academia and how we take these teachings and how we're using them. And that's where I see people like Bell Hooks, who very much have one foot in philosophy all the time, as being really, really important guides, right, for, for comparative philosophy in general. Mm, absolutely. So you think that Dogen's Buddhism and Japanese aesthetics, which is somewhat influenced by Japanese varieties of Buddhism. So you think that can positively mm -hmm. contribute to Bell Hooks' radical black subjectivity and kind of inform how we understand it. So how, how do you think that that's useful to 
the response to the identity critique? Yeah, so I think, you know, Buddhism has always had this really close relationship to the arts everywhere it goes, but in particular in sort of 20th century Japanese philosophy, this connection between Buddhist ideas and aesthetic terminology, so the aesthetic terminology of in Japanese warrants that or, or, or uh, is talked about as having this really close association. So partly because my own areas of specialization at the time were in Japanese philosophy, those were, my, those were the sources I immediately thought of going to when I was trying to think through this aesthetic dimension that Bell Hooks talks about in identity construction and thinking through the ways that I could tie her aesthetics to this aesthetic dimension that tends to be associated with Japanese Buddhist terminology. And I end up talking about it as a kind of appreciation for beauty that also always involves a degree of self-loss. So this, these, these topics of transience and beauty, right, are talked about a lot in Japanese philosophy and in Japanese aesthetic terminology. And so this idea that we are able to appreciate something while we have it, that we don't become overly attached, right? That sort of liberatory potential of the doctrine of no self is right there, right? That we're able to appreciate what we have while we have it and to grow into change without becoming overly attached to past iterations of ourselves or ongoing uh, systems of structural oppression. So there's sort of bigger and smaller ways that I think we could, could interpret that dynamic. One thing I'll say, though, you know, because I went back and read this article for the first time in like forever after you sent me an email about the podcast. And one thing I really wish I'd done that I didn't do in that article was frame this more in terms of Hooks's own Buddhist practice, because Bell Hooks is a practicing Buddhist. I mean, she publishes on Buddhism. I mean, she'll cite Japanese sources and teachers, as well as Tibetan and Vietnamese and lots of others. Now, some of that came out after I wrote the article, but there was definitely some stuff out there at the time. And I, I was, you know, in trying to make this connection between the Buddhist doctrine of no self and Hooks's idea of radical black subjectivity, I didn't want to hinge the argument on Hooks's own Buddhism. And, and thinking back, you know, I was trying to remember, like, why was I so worried about that? And I think part of it, I remember part of it being that I do see Hooks as such an innovative philosopher. And so I didn't want it to seem like I was saying that her ideas on subjectivity were somehow derived from Buddhist sources. But I think I could have finessed that point, you know, in retrospect, way better. And I wish that I had navigated around all that and then made this more about Hooks, the Buddhist practitioner, right, alongside teachers like Dogen. Because again, she herself will, will write about and will invoke some of those same sources on Japanese aesthetics as well. Mm. Okay, so non-attachment, right? It's like my impression a little bit was that it can be quite an unhelpful translation um, because it suggests kind of complete disregard and lack of interest. So what is non-attachment right. really? I mean, I think the, the sort of the most positive spin you can put on it is to, is to call it something like openness, right? That, that we are not rigidly fixed to one version of things, whatever thing we're talking about, right? Whether that's, that's a version of the self or a version of society or a version of sort of the lives that we're leaving, leading, all of that. Um, that we're not rigidly attached to versions of things and, and that the positive read of that is that we are open, right? We are open to the movement of things. We understand, you know, Buddhism asks us to really sort of take a hard look at the life around us, right? And to realize how fleeting things are and that that kind of emotional labor that it takes to recognize 
the reality of that impermanence uh, then feeds in, right? Has to, it, it, I think it can sometimes feel very negative and very sort of disempowering to think in those terms. And Buddhism throughout its history has been accused of that, right? One of the scandals, you know, upon the reception of Buddhism in China was whether or not this was some sort of nihilism and whether it promoted some sort of moral relativism. Um, so this is something that, that Buddhists have had to contend with all along. But I think, again, the response in its most positive turn is, is to say that non-attachment is about openness to the present moment, um, which allows you to act and react in ways that are enabling instead of disenabling at any given, at any, in any given context that, that you're in. So this, when you kind of engage with this, gives rise to mournfulness and this emotional element that you think really informs radical black subjectivity. How, do, how does this, if someone who hadn't read the paper and they were trying to understand mm -hmm. why one was mournful when one is engaging with radical black subjectivity or engaging in this aesthetic awareness. So could you explain how that, how that really works and what, what that's motivated by? I'm glad I reread the paper just right before this, <laughs> so I, I remember what I said. Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of the, the, the main point is that anytime we change, we lose right? Anytime we change who we are, for better or for worse, right? Positive growth or not, uh, we are still losing who we were. Um, and for Buddhism, that, that's, a, that's a very clear point. It's a clear point being made that the temporariness of the self is more than just kind of the mortality of the body, right? That the temporariness of the self is something that we are facing sort of uh, at, at the knife edge of every single moment, right? We are constantly changing. So we're constantly changing. And if we don't have, you know, what Buddhism would call right view of the self that is constantly changing, then we will cling, right? And that kind of disenabling emotional response then uh, to cling to what we have and to resist the change, right? To resist the loss and to resist also what's coming on the horizon that's new. So, you know, resisting losing what we have, but also resisting taking on what's coming. Um, and so that, that's the basic connection between change and loss, right? And I think that we see that play out in the aesthetic discourse that's so closely associated with, with contemporary Japanese philosophy, right? We see this appreciation for transience this, across the Japanese arts. Um, I think one of the ones I mentioned in the paper is something like Ikebana, right? So you've got, you know, flowers are kind of like one of the quintessential expressions of this kind of transient beauty, right? They're only in bloom for a brief amount of time. Um, but you hear, you hear a lot of writing, aesthetic writing in the Japanese context that will say, you know, we shouldn't just appreciate the flowers at full bloom, that we should appreciate the beauty of the flower in its entirety from, from the first bud to its kind of withered petals. And so that connection then that's being made on the aesthetic side of things, right, informed by a lot of Buddhist terminology, seemed to me to be the way, right, that I could bring in part of what I understood the doctrine of no self doing to support this idea of radical black subjectivity, right? And I think Hooks is also saying this with the work that she does on aesthetics, that we need this kind of emotional support for the emotional labor that we're doing to be these changeable, multiplicitous selves, that there is this kind of, maybe to, in today's parlance, we call it self-care or something like that, to use that term in its best possible sense, that there is some sort of, again, emotional support that we need for the labor of being radically subjective, right? 
right? Which I think in Hooks's understanding and in Buddhism's understanding means to be radically in the moment and radically temporary. Okay, so can can you then tell me a bit about, so you mentioned earlier about how you would have used Bell Hooks's own engagement with Buddhism a bit more. And I thought this was really interesting, her um, papers with Tricycle and uh, the various other things. You know, I'd love to hear how you thought you could have use them more in the paper yeah i mean i just think well one i just think it would have been so much more interesting right you know she is a buddhist practitioner she talks a lot about navigating her kind of christian background and upbringing with her her buddhist practice and i think that a lot of that just ties in in ways that are that are interesting and informative and helpful for people to to learn about um who might be dealing with some of these same issues um, so part of it was just because I think it was interesting. Um, but even since uh, I wrote the article, she's done a lot more work on how Buddhism itself affects her own sort of philosophical thought, her own cultural criticism. Um, and a lot of that work is just is super and, and easily available. A lot of it is on sort of platforms like Lions War, Tricycle that are available online. There's a great interview George Yancey interviews Bell Hooks in The Stone, I think. It's a, it's a New York Times piece. Um, and he talks to her a little bit about Buddhism and how it has, how it, the role it's played sort of in her overall, you know, her own personal intellectual history. Um, and that's a really great article too. Mm, absolutely. So I, I saw you had a book coming out this September, am I right? Yes. I so you so, that look, so last week's guest um, was Jin Park, and she spoke to me a lot about Kim Iryo. Um, and I, I saw that you were using her a bit in the book, and that sounds really interesting. So um, could you tell me a bit about the book, what it's about, um, and what you're doing there? Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Jin Park is amazing and is the translator of the Kim Iryo piece that I use in my book, uh, Cross-Cultural Existentialism. And Kim Iryo is really sort of the starting point for me in that book because she makes these really interesting comments about the basically the power of meditation to change the world. And I think in our kind of contemporary age where we tend to demystify the statements of Buddhism, uh, it's important to go back to people who really did sort of believe, and, and she, she's very clear, at least in Jen's translation, the way it comes out, that she is talking about kind of super normal powers of the mind that a meditator can cultivate. And this is, you know, apart for the course kind of in Buddhist literature, it's just not how we tend to think about meditation these days in the contemporary mindfulness movement, which tends to focus on kind of a more therapeutic aspect or even a more kind of physiological aspect, right? We can see, we can demonstrate the effects that meditation has on the body. What Kimmy Thope is talking about maybe, you know, less easy to demonstrate by scientific means. Um, again, so there are certain supernormal powers of the mind that meditators are thought to develop in the Buddhist tradition. And then we get this 20th century, you know, Korean nun who I'm, I'm assuming uh, listeners probably heard about uh, last week through uh, the interview with Jen, who's taking these ideas about meditation and applying them in this, in her, in her political context, uh, the political context of her day in ways that are just sort of mind blowing, um, talking about how meditation itself can be this force for social change and can conduct it in her language, right, a kind of energy into the world. And I just thought, what, what does that mean, right? How do, what does it mean to take that seriously, right? What does it mean to maybe look back at the Buddhist sources that support that understanding of meditation that she's using? And what does it mean to think about how her understanding of meditation as a kind of energy is supported by 
larger assumptions in the East Asian context about the kind of matter energy matrix of, of chi, you know, if you know this term chi, uh, that kind of constitutes reality in a lot of non-Buddhist Chinese discourses. Um, so part of the, the whole motivation for that book was to understand Kimmy Vilk better, and then by extension to understand how this power of the mind that she's talking about might actually be a force for social change. So the book in the long, the, the short answer is the book ends up being about Confucianism much more so than about Buddhism, because that's sort of the, this kind of idea that internal self-cultivation practices have this socio-political efficacy um, is something that you, you see come out very clearly um, in Confucian or Ruist. And, you know, there's this alternative word for Confucianism that I, that I prefer because it's a better translation of, of the original Chinese term, which just means something like scholar. But so these Ruist sort of meditative and bodily cultivation practices were definitely seen as necessary components of a good scholar and also a good politician's life. Yeah, that's where I kind of try, you know, the book begins with Kimmy though, but in the process of trying to contextualize her, ends up looking at East Asian sources much more broadly. Mm, that sounds really interesting. You know, like, um, it, 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 it's, it's such an overdue kind of, thing to think about how you know we have promises of meditation can change the world and do all these things and yet those who you mentioned briefly in the modern mindfulness discourse make these claims and then can't really back them up so like there's a there's an interview with or a discussion with John Kabat-Zinn and Angela Davis that I've heard a lot of people talk about and never been able to get hold of myself because um, I think it was just such bad publicity for them they have had to hide it away but from what I understand John Kabat-Zinn was kind of claiming that his mindfulness practice could do all these things and then when Angela Davis was kind of quizzing him a bit on it it, it w didn't really hold up at all so yeah it's long overdue a kind of <laughs> book like that which actually looks at well how, how would this actually work and how can we engage with this properly so I'm, go I'm going off on one a bit there but I'm, I'm very excited to read that so that sounds great so <laughs> so um thank you very much for coming on the podcast i'm uh, i'm really grateful um and thank you for coming on is there any closing things you'd like to remark or say um maybe if i could just throw a few more names out there of other great resources again there's a lot of there are a lot of excellent buddhist teachers right now who are also black women who are also feminists to various degrees there was about 10 years ago a womanist reading group at harvard it's a womanist or uh Womanism is a uh, term coined by Alice Walker, and it's kind of become associated with scholarship of African-American women working in some manner with liberation theology. So there's two volumes, at least, of the journal Buddhist Christian Studies um, that are special issues on womanist-Buddhist dialogue. That's in 2016 and also in 2012. Um, so that's a, like so many great authors, so many great articles are in just those two special issues. Um, and then there's also a new edited volume out by Emily McRae and George Yancey on Buddhism and whiteness that came out a couple years back um, that also starts, that, that talks a lot about kind of uh, the, the role of Buddhism in both sort of being implicated in, but also helping us address and think through issues of systemic uh, racism. So yeah, I just wanted to put some more uh, resources out there for any listeners and especially for anyone who are teachers who are looking for this kind of stuff to bring into their you know, introduction to Buddhism classes or something like that, that there's all this great work out there being done precisely on, on these issues, which are so, you know, 
obviously relevant still today. There was so you mentioned earlier, and my connection went a bit bad. So it was Reverend Angel Cleodo Williams, and there was someone before that, wasn't there? Yeah, Zenju Earthland Manuel. She has a book out called The Way of Tenderness, which is just awesome, a really good book. And she's talking a lot there about the kind of again the kind of emotional support that we need to be the kind of selves who are liberated in the sense that Buddhism means, but also in the way that she means some um, in a contemporary sociopolitical sense. So the way of tenderness. Great. Um, well, Leah, thank you very much. Thank you. Made it to the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I definitely learned a lot from this one. If you want to support the podcast, you can leave a like on Facebook, follow on Instagram, follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Give us a great review on Apple Podcasts. Read what Leah Calmerson does. And if you enjoyed her guesting on the podcast, then make sure you let her know. And make sure you read Send you Earth with Manuel, Angel Kyoto Williams, Bell Hooks, and the other authors.